In these uh, talks so far for Holy Week, we've been reflecting on how Holy Week, if we follow it in the right way, can open for us the spiritual dimension. And this morning I was talking about the spiritual dimension as, a, as the dimension that includes all the other dimensions of our lives. It's the dimension without boundaries, without divisions. Where the spirit is, there is unity, St. Paul says. So anything in our life that uh, unites, that heals, that integrates, uh, could be said to be uh, influenced by, by this energy of the spiritual dimension. Whatever divides, breaks, rejects, builds walls rather than bridges, could be said to deny the spiritual dimension. And if we want to live as spiritual people. Of course we need to open the spiritual dimension within ourselves. It's, it's not outside of ourselves uh, only, nor is it only inside of ourselves. We are in the spiritual dimension. So, uh, and I was, um, I was saying that of course we continue to live in the world of duality, of contradictions, of oppositions. This is how we usually see the world in terms of contrasting opposites. And when you have op opposites, you often have conflicts, differences of opinion, differences of um, perception, uh, differences of personality. So these, uh, these <coughs> oppositions uh, also have to be accepted because this dimension of duality is a real dimension. It's not the ultimate dimension. And we are not happy or healthy if we live only in this dimension of duality. That's why we need to open up the spiritual dimension. Nevertheless, it's something that we have to live with and learn how to live with. And to learn how to live with this dimension of duality and conflict and opposition while at the same time discovering the spiritual dimension that is what I'll talk about later as the, the life of a disciple. A disciple is someone who is learning to live in a different way, in a way that is oriented towards the spiritual dimension 
but is also has, as it were, uh, a, a way of functioning within the ordinary world, if you like. And that's why I, I gave you this little card of the uh, picture of uh, Christ from the icon at uh, St. Catherine's Monastery in Sinai. And I asked you to uh, reflect on it, to look at it, and to allow this image to look at you. Were you, did you, were you able to do that? Yes. So, did you notice the two eyes, how different the two eyes are? Okay. And what, how would you describe the difference? What's, what's, what's the difference between them? First of all, just as you look at the face as a whole, What's, what's the first impression you have? What's the first feeling you have of, of the face? I've been drawn to that Christ's right eye, or left as you look at it. And what came to mind was, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. So that's your overall impression? That is, yes, that, from, from that direction given yeah. by that right eye. But what I was asking was, looking at the picture as a whole, you just, you, you know, if you meet anybody, uh, in, you start looking at their face, you begin to, you, first of all, one of the first things you will notice is that the, the eyes are different. We're not, we don't have symmetrical eyes. Uh, we would look, but a few people have, anyway. So, but we have, we get an impression of the person as a whole. What's your, what's your overall first impression? If you met somebody with this face, what would you think? What would you feel? Beauty. Hmm. What kind, how would you, just, what kind of beauty? Behavioral beauty. Good. The dark, something about the darkness of it says beauty to me as well. The dark hair and the dark eyes. Mm. Some kind of depth that is also beauty. Good. Not something that's not just surface. Thank you. But who can translate that? Uh, what, what should you just say? Oh, you were translating. Sorry, you were translating. I didn't. Oh yes. So if you, when you speak, if you wouldn't mind speaking a little more slowly, uh, Mike, why are you making those? I'm just trying to do the half and half thing. Oh, on there. I thought you were doing it. Sorry. Go on, Mike. Go on. Oh, just when I opened my eyes, I also my first word was beautiful. Slowly, slowly. Beautiful. And it's not, it wasn't the eyes, it was his, it was the mouth, it was his, or the light, I would say, just the light. The light. The light. The light. Light. La lumière. 
Okay. Let's keep it, it's very good to get your responses, but keep them, keep them short because for the translator. Also, the, the, we, didn't, we didn't talk about the, the mouth. But let's, let's, let's leave the mouth till next year. <laughs> but, and, and, the, 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 yes, the moustache is not, is uh, inegal. Eh? The moustache is inegal. Yeah. The first impression I had this morning. There's one eye that looks at me. And the other eye looks uh, across me or through me. Yes, the eye on the on the left. Okay, it looks at another reality that is behind me, behind the observer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Um, Marguerite? Sorrow. Sorrow. La tristesse. La douleur. Moi, je vois la profondeur de, de, de quelqu'un qui a, qui, a, qui, a euh, qui a vécu, quoi, qui sait ce que c'est que que l'humanité, quoi. Je vois, je vois, je vois quel, un regard profond de, 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 qui connaît la souffrance, quoi. So, so he knows suffering. Mais la, la, la souffrance qui... Euh, voilà, c'est une souffrance qui, 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 qui transcende. The suffering is transcended or, or transcends, mm -hmm. okay. So, looking at the hands, on the right hand, it just seemed to be there without any grasping or anything, whereas the left hand, holding on to this scripture, to me it meant this was living a life of the rules and regulations, this was just being present, being. Okay. Thank you. So, excellent. Uh, uh, yes, go on. It's, it's not, yeah, the mouth is important, but it's the smile. That's the first thing I saw. Smile. He's, the figure is smiling. Does everybody see the smile? Yeah, yeah Ruth? If you cover the serious spot, the eye just goes out. There is a twinkle in the other eye. Okay. Sad smile. Okay, then slowly, slowly. So, if you if you cover the the dark eye, just. There is a twinkle in the eye. Shh. Okay. Yes, you're quite right. There is. Yeah. It's a. It, So it's an amazing portrait. Um, if you, especially if you consider it was painted in the fifth century, uh, was it the sixth century? Sixth century. So it, it's a astonishingly 
complete and comprehensive uh, image of a human face. And this morning I was saying that uh, the meaning of, of Christ in the light of Holy Week is that uh, he shows us what humanity means, what it means to be human. We've often reduced uh, Christianity to a morality. And we think of Jesus as somebody who's telling us what to do. In fact, the only thing he tells us to do is to love one another. Uh, he's, he's, he's the uh, popular image of Christianity today in many parts of the world is of a, a very strict morality uh, which condemns and rejects people who don't obey those moral codes. It's primarily seen as a moral filter. But this picture, I think, takes us back to the, to the Jesus we meet in the, uh, in the Gospel and to the risen Jesus that we meet in our hearts and in our community. And it's, he, I, don't, as I think you, we've understood he's not telling us that we are wrong and that we should be better. He's not telling us uh, what it is we should be doing. But he is awakening us to what he sees, to what he has already awakened to. Remember he said to the disciples at the Last Supper, um, I call you friends because I have shared with you everything that I have learned from my Father. And these two eyes reflect the duality of life that we live. Uh, it seems to me that the, the, the right eye here, the darker side of the face, is not uh, condemning, but almost uh, is, is, is carrying the cross of the world. He's seeing the, the suffering uh, and darkness that there is in the world. He's seeing it in a way that moves him as it moves us when we see it and uh, moves, moves us in, with many different kinds of response or emotion. Sadness, uh, grief, maybe anger and outrage when we see injustice. So that's very, and, and there's a, that, that whole dimension of, of life in the world of duality, arising from conflict, and division is not denied, but it's absorbed, it seems to me, in the more dominant uh, side of the face, which is the lighter face, the younger face as well, uh, which is gazing us as, uh, as um, 
Jean-Claude said, is, is, is uh, gazing into the spiritual dimension in us. That this other eye is, is looking into the spiritual dimension that is in us and is also beyond us. So, keep, keep this card with you during the next uh, three days of, uh, of the, the Triduum, the three days of Easter, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Sunday was always seen as the eighth day of the week. So we've sort of opened up into the dimension beyond time uh, on, on Sunday or the Sabbath. So tomorrow we will be um, beginning tomorrow evening with the washing of, of the feet. A very simple dramatic um, but friendly gesture of the spirit of service that the disciple of Jesus carries within them, tries to cultivate, and that we, that defines the, the way we relate to each other, the spirit of service, not domination, not control, not some kind of superiority uh, or inferiority, but uh, the equality of friendship. If we want, Jesus, remember, says to his disciples that in his eyes, he sees them as friends. He sees us as friends. And it's quite a revolutionary statement. If we believe or engage with the belief of the, of the full um, meaning of the person of Jesus as the, as the Word of God made incarnate in the flesh, in a human being, um, then we assume that everything that Jesus says and does then or now is a, a translation, a perfect translation of the divine into the human. Translation by its very nature is, is imperfect. But in the Incarnation, we say that there is a perfect translation of the, of the divine into the human. And therefore, what we see in Jesus is the Father. To see me is to have seen the Father, Jesus says. And of course, what enables that sight to happen is the Spirit. We can only see God, know God, by sharing in God's own self-knowledge. We can never know God as an object looking at or thinking about 
God from the outside. So uh, if, this, if Jesus calls us his friends in this solemn, profound way, we could say this has revolutionized our understanding of our relationship to God. And because the nature of friendship is one of the qualities of friendship in, in the human, uh, in, in human relationships is equality. You cannot, you cannot be friends with someone unless you feel this equality. You could be colleagues, you could be, have all other sorts of complicated relationships, but if there's no recognition and acceptance of equality, there can't be friendship. I mean, you may admire your friend for the gifts that they have, you may see in them things that you don't have in yourself, but fundamentally there has to be, has to be a meeting of equals. And of course, and in that meeting of equals, there, there, there is an exchange. I have revealed everything to you. This is what we do with a, a, a full friend. We share everything. We hold nothing back. So, um, this opens up a whole new sense of our relationship to God and therefore of, to the ground of being, to our mysterious source of being. And of course it, uh, it gives us a quite new understanding of the of our own nature. It means that in some sense, despite our human weakness and human failures, nevertheless, we are equal to God. If we weren't equal to God, it would be impossible for us to be divinized. And that the Christian mystical tradition emphasizes that, the, that God became human so that, the, so that the human being can become God. That's one of the, the theological mantras of the early church. God became human so that human beings might become God. So that doesn't mean that we have already arrived at this point, but it does give a meaning to life. That the purpose of life is essentially to discover our capacity, our destiny, to be divinized. And Jesus describes this in the passages we looked at yesterday uh, in terms of union, that the union that he enjoys with the Father is the same union 
that he wishes us to enjoy with him. So, let's come back to this uh, idea of discipleship. Tomorrow, as we, as we um, begin Holy Thursday with the liturgy of the washing of the feet, we, are, we, we meet the disciples together with Jesus. He shocks Peter, the lead, lead disciple, by saying that he will wash Peter's feet. Peter rejects this because, it, because he has not yet understood the nature of his relationship to Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus is not just to be a follower or a worshipper, someone who worships. It is to be someone on the way to becoming one with Christ. To be a disciple is to be someone who is preparing for this ultimate consummation with the mind and the person of Christ. In fact, as the tradition used to say, we become other, another Christ. Another Christ. This is a, a lifelong journey, but it's one that gives meaning to everything in our life. It's not something we add on for consolation, or for good luck, but we, we enter into it because it is, uh, it is the very essence of the meaning of our life. So what does it mean for us? And how can we become a Christian or to be on our way to be being a Christian? Who were the first disciples of the apostolic church? Because they model discipleship for every generation. We sort of look back uh, to these early records and uh, understand what it means to be a disciple of this teacher, this master. First of all, Jesus called them personally, one by one. They didn't all just register online, but there was a personal experience of a personal call. Some of them were fishermen, some of them tax collectors, political agitators, one of them was called a thief. He called them after an extended period of prayer on the mountain. 
after Peter was called from his, his uh, boats, his fish, fisherman boat on the Sea of Galilee, he moved and travelled around with Jesus. It was a change of life. Not everybody did that. There were different kinds of disciples. Some of the people Jesus healed followed him along the road. Some of them stayed at home but followed him in a different way. Above all, it's linked to prayer, to the experience of interior transformation. At the beginning of the Gospel of John, we see John the Baptist standing with two of his disciples when Jesus walks by. The John says, points to Jesus and says, there is the Lamb of God. And the two disciples follow Jesus. Now, just imagine the scene. They're following him. What are they looking at? What are they looking at when they follow him? What are they looking at? Hmm? Right. So, and then it says he turns. So, they're following him, being good Christians. They go to church. They obey most of the commandments and then he turns and he sees them following him so he's now looking at them right what happens at that moment he talks he talks yep he said what are you looking for his first, his first spoken words to them is a question. It's a very simple question, but a, quite a uh, dramatic question, because how do you answer that question? If we were to say, why, you know, what are you looking for by coming to Bombeau this Easter? <laughs> Quickly, hurry up, what are you looking for? <laughs> it would be difficult to, to give us a straight answer. Are we going okay? Um, so the disciples respond and they respond master as their first word to him is an acknowledgement of what they have already learned not from John the Baptist but from his look at them his looking, the way he looked at them and in many other places in the story uh, in the Gospels, Jesus looks at people. He looked at the rich young man who found it difficult to give up his attachments to his wealth. And he loved him. And in the uh, story of the Passion narrative, uh, when he's during his trial, Jesus looks at Peter after Peter has denied him the third time. What kind of look is that? So, 
a look, a simple gaze, regard, can uh, bring about quite a powerful uh, change in the person who is receiving that look. So they say, Master. And then uh, they ask him a question. It's a different kind of question. It's a disciple's question. They say, Master, where are you staying? And this word staying is, is a very uh, ambiguous word. Because in the Gospel of John, it also is used in the later passages that we've looked at from the Last Supper, when Jesus says, as we looked at this morning, the Father and I will come and make our home in you. So we will come and stay in, in you, with you. So imagine you get a message from a friend, I'm coming to stay. I <laughs> don't know for how long, but I'm coming to stay. Uh, and, but, it, you know, it could also mean, what's your address? What hotel are you staying at in Capernaum? Jesus uh, moved from Nazareth, which was a little small town or village, uh, off, off the beaten track, remote, and uh, he moved to Capernaum at the beginning of his uh, teaching and traveling. It was his base of operation because Capernaum was a very well-connected uh, city on the main communication routes. So it was there probably that he stayed and uh, maybe in Peter's house by legend. Anyway, so we could also call Jesus Jesus of Capernaum as well as Jesus of Nazareth. So the disciples ask him, where are you staying? And he replies, come and see. So this isn't, he doesn't give them a, a direct answer. You know, I'm staying the third house past the <coughs> gas station um, but he gives them an invitation and they accept this invitation they go and they see where he is staying and they stay with him the same word stay with him for the rest of the day so the day is a symbol of a life and then uh, St. John ends this little passage by saying it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. Actually, it's five o'clock. Four o'clock in the afternoon. Tea time. But also a time of prayer for the early Christians. The early church punctuated the day like the Muslims do or we do here in Bonveau, uh, at certain times of the day, we'll be meditating at six o'clock. 
So if you were to say to somebody at Bombeau, it was about six o'clock, if you knew the place, you'd know that's meditation time. So this is prayer. So the whole of this story is very, very economical, simple story describing the first moments of discipleship, but symbolizing maybe a whole lifetime of discipleship. So the whole of this is connected to the moment of prayer, to the experience of prayer. Not just of action, not just of, uh, of preaching. Later, Jesus sends them out, two by two, uh, on little missions to preach, to heal, to proclaim the good news. But, but the deeper uh, grounding of this mission is prayer. And prayer is entering into this presence, the staying uh, of Christ uh, in, in us. So he called the first disciples um, apostles. The word means messenger or maybe ambassador. They were not sophisticated or educated people. And some of them came from rather unpopular professions, like being a tax collector. Not the most popular profession ever, but particularly unpopular then because the tax collectors were known to be uh, very corrupt. Um, so they entered into uh, a, a new lifestyle as they followed him and began to be disciples. And they failed frequently, perhaps continuously. Peter was the biggest failure of them all. But Jesus was always faithful to them. He never sent anybody away, even Judas. He doesn't reject Judas. He had three close disciples, Peter, James, and John, uh, who accompany him at special moments. Then we should also add St. Paul, who calls himself and insists that he is a, an apostle just as much as, the, as Peter and uh, Matthew and uh, the others. Because he said he also met Christ on the road. He also was called and, uh, and followed. He met the risen Christ, which is how we meet him, not the historical Jesus, <coughs> but the risen Christ. So we also in a sense, had this call to be apostles, messengers, and 
ambassadors. That comes with it, that comes with a responsibility, in other words. It's not just the privileges of being a disciple, but it comes with responsibilities. So what is involved in being a disciple? Well, it's not so much what are the conditions, because as we see, we may not fulfill the conditions very well. But what is, what is involved? What would lead us into this new identity? And it is a kind of a reshaping of our identity. First of all, a love of Jesus, an attraction. And you fall in love with someone, maybe over time, or maybe at first sight. But even if it's at first sight, it, it has to grow and develop. And there's no real logical, rational reason that you can give for that attraction. It's just there. So that must be the, the basic uh, element. But then also a trust in his authenticity, which allows us to obey his teaching, to listen to his teaching as best we can. And above all, to keep walking with him. Jesus says, no one can be my disciple without renouncing all his possessions. Well, St. Francis of Assisi interpreted that literally. St. Benedict uh, interprets it um, communally not just individually giving away everything you have, but more in the spirit of sharing and using what you have for the common good. So however you interpret it, and St. Francis had a good interpretation, though not many people can, can uh, uh, reproduce that, but St. Benedict also had a perfectly and perhaps more realistic um, interpretation of what it means to leave all your possessions behind. John Main, as we heard in, in the reading at lunch today, uh, understood meditation in the Christian tradition as a way of living that call to renounce all your possessions. Not, first of all, in the external or material sense, but interiorly. This is precisely what we do as we say the mantra. We are letting go, renouncing all the riches of thought and imagination as one of the teachers of St. Benedict said. And when we meditate uh, wholeheartedly, 
we are embracing the way of poverty, just as radically uh, as St. Francis of Assisi. He also calls his disciples to non-violence, recognizing that it is not easy to practice. And as Gandhi said, it takes more courage to be non-violent uh, than to respond with violence. So even though we may uh, fail to, to, to practice this principle of non-violence in all situations, nevertheless, we engage with it. It's, it's something that we believe in. He also clearly cares for the poor, for the marginal, for the weak, rather than uh, uh, identifying himself with the centers of power uh, or individuals of, of power. Uh, he identifies with uh, those uh, on the ground level. So there are many, many other uh, elements uh, of Christian discipleship that, that we can identify from the gospel, gospel stories. The early church, it seems, was composed mostly of domestic slaves, a rather low-class kind of um, church. When I was, I was visiting uh, Mike's sister, who's a priest in uh, Anglican priest in Boston, at a church where she runs a, a group for homeless people, meditation group for homeless people. And she, when she became a priest, she felt called not so much to be in the church building as to be with the people in the, um, uh, you know, on, uh, on the streets, many of whom are homeless, alcoholic, drug addicts. And she forms a little community with them and uh, so they, they used to come and, and she would meditate with them and I meditated with them and a very deep and profound meditation with these street people. While I was with them, the, uh, one of the priests of the church came to visit and he told me that he said when he f was first came to the church, he was given the job of, 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 of building up the congregation, bringing more people uh, into the church. And when he arrived early one morning for the first day, he saw all these street people sitting on the steps <laughs> of the church, uh, waiting for the sandwich or their <coughs> cup of coffee. And he, he said, the first thing that came through to my mind was, well, if we're going to bring new people to the church, 
we have to get rid of this lot. <laughs> Who's going to come into the church? People like me, you know, or people like us, you know, if we have to step over this, uh, this kind of part of the population. And he said that it was only when he met this group of homeless people who came regularly for the meditation group and realized what a profound presence of Christ there was at those meetings. He said, then it clicked. He said, these are the people. I'm supposed to bring new people into the church. Well, here they are. Let's welcome them. Let's say that these are the, we welcome you. And maybe it would be nice if we had some rich benefactors as well, but we're not going to send you away in order to please the rich benefactors. So, so this, is, this is clearly uh, essential to Christian discipleship, that we, we if, if, if we have a, a, a preference or an option, uh, it, it, we can be open to everyone, condemn no one, but if there is a, if there is a, a, a preference, it is towards the, strongly towards the poor, and the marginal. So this early period of discipleship came to an end when the church became established. When the Emperor Constantine in the fourth century said, let's use this Christian church, which is now spread all around the empire. The empire is in trouble. Maybe we can use this group to, to you know, advance the unity and good organization in the empire. And um, this led to a, a dramatic change in the numbers, but also in the quality of disciples. There was a an obvious uh, decline in the spiritual energy or the spiritual intensity. Uh, Christian life became more ritualistic or more, more um, say, let's say, superficial. Soon after that, the monastic movement began, another form of discipleship. It, it, it began in the deserts of Egypt in the fourth century. And it was from this movement of uh, Christian contemplative renewal of people living a very radical kind of discipleship. It was directly from this desert tradition that we receive the teaching of meditation that has led us here to Bombeau and is, you know, the, the life and the mission of the 
world community. So perhaps we could say that we are at a new phase of Christian discipleship. It's one, uh, and we are in transition from what is left of the, the old institutional forms of Christianity. We know that those forms are changing before our eyes or disappearing. Religious orders um, the disappearing, uh, plummeting, declining numbers of, of clergy, uh, alienation of, of most of the younger population and many women. So we can see uh, we are in a, a time of dramatic change. I don't think it's a time of extinction, as some people predict. And I, but I think we could say it's a time of transformation, a recovery of this essence of discipleship. in contemporary, uh, in the contemporary context. And two elements that I think many of us would, would see in the uh, form of the new church that is taking shape. Well, first of all, that it will be a church of many forms. It will be a more diverse, less monolithic uh, kind of uh, fellowship. Secondly, that although there will no doubt be clergy and monks, uh, every religion uh, generates some form of monastic life and has need of some kind of uh, some kind of ministry, but the, the form, the forms of clergy and monastic life will no doubt be very different from what we have been familiar with. And it will be contemplative. One of the great uh, theologians of the 20th century, Karl Rahner, said that the Christian of the future Will be, Christ, will be mystic or there will be no Christians. So, more diversity and a, a deeper contemplative spirituality and uh, more engagement with the world, uh, the real world uh, around us. So, that's um, all I have to say about disciples for this evening anyway. <laughs>